Gangary the Podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu slash JDM. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. This week, I talk with Ed Caesar, author of Two Hours, The Quest to Run the Impossible Marathon. The book chronicles the attempts of the world's greatest marathon runners to inch closer and closer to the magical two-hour mark and follows one runner in particular, Joffrey Mutai. The book was published in the United States in October by Simon & Schuster. Caesar has contributed to The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, Outside, The Smithsonian Magazine, The Sunday Times Magazine, and British GQ. He's reported from a wide range of countries, including the Democratic Republic of Congo, Kosovo, and Iran. He's written about secretive Russian oligarchs, African civil wars, marathon tennis matches, British murder trials, and more. In 2014, Caesar was named Journalist of the Year by the Foreign Press Association of London. As usual, we've linked to Caesar's work on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Uh, first of all, uh, let us I'd love to start talking about your book, uh, Two Hours, uh, The Quest to Run the Impossible Marathon. Um, can you can you just start off by giving like an, a synopsis of, of what the book is about? Sure, it's a it's a book about the world's greatest distance runners and this Everest in distance running, which is the two-hour marathon, which we're about three minutes away from at the moment. The world record's currently at two o two fifty seven, but it's also the story of the marathon as a discipline and about why we run long distances and about the peculiarly troubled and uh, brutal lives of those at the very top of the sport. Uh, and it's about a very beautiful sport, professional marathon running, that's, that's kind of hidden in plain sight. You know, we see uh, the world's great marathon runners run through our cities every once in a while, and no one knows much about them. No one knows who they are or uh, where they come from or what their lives are like. And really, it's a book that seeks to find out some of the answers to those questions. You, uh, you focus the book on a runner named Joffrey Mutai. Can you talk about how, how you found him and, and, and why you wanted to, to, to make him kind of the, uh, the, the focus and the structure of the book? Of course, yeah. Well, he was... Um, Joffrey Mutai is a Kenyan uh, who comes from... Uh, the the real heartland of of running country uh, in Kenya, where about 80% of uh, the world's marathon winners, major marathon winners, come from, from this one particular area of Kenya. And he is an extraordinary athlete, certainly was an extraordinary athlete, who in 2011 had run the world's fastest ever marathon time in Boston uh, in 2.03.02. And he'd also broken the course record in New York six months later by a nearly unimaginable three minutes. And he was, out of a crop of very, very talented runners, uh, certainly 
the best, if not one of the best. And he was also, and this is much more interesting from my perspective, uniquely reflective, uh, interested in running uh, beyond training regimens and whatever else people might be interested in running. Um, he was interested in running as a kind of spiritual metaphor. He was interested in running as uh, a way to escape poverty. He was um, a guy that thought a lot about running and thought a lot about the world and his story. And when you meet a really great character like that as a nonfiction writer, you know to hang on to them. And he was just a fantastic character. Were you ever concerned with with the fact that given... um I guess in some instances how quickly a runner's career can kind of start to bottom out, that by the time you, the book came out that he might not be at that top of uh, where he was in 2011? Oh, hugely. Yeah, I was really worried about that. And in fact, that kind of came to pass, but it came to pass in interesting ways. Um, so he was definitely on the slide as I was reporting the book. Mm-hmm. Um, he did win a couple more marathons. Um, and... You know, the book finishes with him winning the New York City Marathon in 2013. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty grateful for him having done that. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> because, uh, it, you know, it made for a nice finale. But even though he won that race, he definitely wasn't at his peak. And um, for me, I was worried for a long time about, you know, we weren't going to have a Hollywood ending with, mm-hmm. this, with this one. But then I thought, actually, you know, that's just, that's the story of all runners. And... You know, his failure, if you want to call it that, is really interesting in itself. And, you know, he continues to be a huge and thrilling success by his own terms mm-hmm. when you consider where he comes from and, and what the what the kind of troubles were, were in his life. So um, to me, as a narrative, it was more interesting for me to him not to get the thing that he wants desperately um, than for him to get it. Mm-hmm. Did you um did did you talk to other runners? I mean, was it always said that this was this was going to be the guy you were going to focus on? Oh or? God, no, no. I talked to, I mean, so many. Uh, I I was working out the other day. I think I took forty two flights in oh reporting the book. Um, I spent a lot of time in East Africa and around the world with uh, a number of different runners. There's so much reporting that is not in the book you know i went to the rotterdam marathon two years in a row to follow different runners none of that's in the book uh i for a while thought my star might be a character who becomes only a minor part of the book you know i took a lot of full starts in the well not full starts interesting byways in the reporting and eventually i got to the idea that you know this was my guy and this was who i had to build the book around Mm mm-hmm so, so that so that's really where I came from. I had this huge mountain of reporting, way too much, really. Mm-hmm. And out of that, I managed to carve this, you know, this quite simple story in a way. Right. It. Uh, what was what was the like the deciding factor that made you know ultimately come to the conclusion that it, that it had to be Joffrey? I just think um, at this one incredible. Uh, trip to Kenya where we knew each other pretty well at this point mm-hmm. and I went to stay in his camp and he started talking to me about his father and about how his father had beaten him up as a kid and um, and about how he still sought approval from his father um, and wanted him to be proud of his achievements 
even though all that stuff had happened in the childhood. And he told me a lot of things that were obviously very, very painful to him mm-hmm. and that he was still working out. And we were just sitting there in this camp in the middle of nowhere with, you know, 3,000 skies twinkling, uh, 3,000 stars twinkling in the, you know, in the night sky above us and, you know, the cell phones didn't work and uh, a long way from from a big town and just just sitting out there talking about things that were very meaningful to him. I just knew he was my guy. You know, none of the other runners really talked in those terms. And I just struck up a great relationship with Joffrey. You know, he was very much at the top of his game. um, And I just felt this, this is my guy. Mm -hmm. When you were, when you were uh, with him, did, did, did he speak English or did you need a translator? No, no, we spoke English. Okay. Okay. English is his, uh, like third or fourth language. Okay. And, and Is that it? We, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Occasionally we, you know, we struggle a little bit, but he's, you know, he's got idiosyncratic English, mm-hmm. which makes perfect sense if you spend a lot of time around it. Right. Um, he sometimes gets genders mixed up, so he'll say he for she or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he speaks uh, his, you know, his mother tongue is... Uh, you know, he's a Kipsigis, mm-hmm. so that's a sub-tribe of the Kalenjin. So Kipsigis is his first language, uh, which is kind of part of Kalenjin language, and then he speaks Swahili, obviously, and then English. So um, he is, um, you know, he's, you know, he's not school smart, but he's very smart mm-hmm. in other ways. Mm-hmm. Now, given your reporting, your, your reporting background, I'm assuming you have worked with translators in the past. Uh, yeah. And so how much of a difference does it make when you when you don't need that? As well, a having a translator can be frustrating in lots of ways. And one of the things that I kick myself about is that I didn't, um, you know, I spoke pretty good French when I left school and I haven't really kept it up. Mm-hmm. So I can get by with French, but it, I definitely, you know, wouldn't want to report a whole story, a complicated story in French, you know, I just wouldn't get it. So mm-hmm. I need a translator. You know, and I wish I'd worked harder on languages because being able to speak fluently in, you know, in someone's language is obviously when you're going to get the best stuff. Um, but I think sometimes having a translator is actually okay. You know, you can, you know, the little pauses give you time to to think mm-hmm. and to, to really work out where the next question is coming from. You get into a different rhythm. Mm. Uh, I once I was once interviewing the the low-ranked French tennis player Nicolas Mahou, who um, had engaged in one of the most extraordinary sporting occasions I'd ever seen, which was this three-day tennis match at Wimbledon against John Isner, the American John Isner, mm-hmm. which finished in the fifth set, uh, 70-68 to Isner, and this this tennis match went on for 11 hours, mm-hmm. and it was like double the length of time that any tennis match had ever gone on. And uh, Nicolas Mahou, I interviewed him in France, and I said, you know, what do you want to be, what language do you want to be interviewed in? I knew he spoke English. And he said, well, if, uh, you know, I can get by in English, but if you want me to say something interesting, let's talk in French. <laughs> <laughs> so that for me was, you know, instructive, because if you do talk to someone in their home language, they are more likely to say something interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What the... What drew you to uh, the topic of this uh, elite group of uh, marathoners, and uh, made you think that there was there was indeed a good book there? I had done a magazine story 
on um, the death of one of the world's great marathon runners uh, called Sammy Wanjiru. Uh, he had died at the age of 24, falling off a balcony of a house in Kenya. And he was the 2008 Olympic champion. And I didn't know anything about marathon running, but you know, when the Olympic gold medalist um, dies three years later in a seemingly inexplicable accident, it just seems to be a story, you know, it would be a story, whatever the sport was, really. And so I said to my um, editor, you know, I, I'd really like to go and do this as a magazine story. Um, you know, I'd worked a lot in East Africa, um, so although I hadn't worked on marathon running, I knew the terrain somewhat, and I had a good fixer and driver that I knew and what have you. So um, I persuaded my editor that I should go out and do the story, and it was fascinating, the story of this particular guy called Sami Wanjiru and you know, what had happened to his life was he'd become a drinker and a womanizer and what have you, and he'd gone off the rails. But while I was in Kenyan running country, I saw these other, you know, groups of runners. I mean, groups of 60 or 70 people, you know, going up and down dirt tracks, training. And, you know, there were hundreds, thousands of, of people trying to become professional runners. And I thought to myself, like, how is this possible, you know, you know, 1% of these people are going to make money in their lives. There just isn't any money in running. So what are these guys all doing? You know, what, what's, um, you know, what's going on here? And from that inquiry, I just became more and more interested in the kind of East African running phenomenon in distance running. I started looking at marathons much more closely, mm-hmm. um, started paying much more attention to like what was going on at the front of marathons. And then somebody, and then in September 2011, um, a guy called Patrick Macau, a Kenyan, broke the world record for the marathon in Berlin. Mm-hmm. And a conversation started to happen, which happens every time someone breaks a, a world record, which is how, how long till we break two hours? And is it possible to break two hours for the marathon? And that's when I thought I might have a book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was um, so much interesting stuff in here. I, you know, I've been, I've been running. Um, for about three years now myself and I, I kind of pay I pay much more attention to, to running news now than I did maybe three or four years ago there are so many interesting things that I didn't know um, such oh, as the fact that you can't set the official world record cannot be set in Boston no <laughs> it's so weird <laughs> can you talk can you explain yeah, that sure. a little bit so Boston goes from Hopkinton Massachusetts down to down to Boston Street in, in Boston, and um, it is essentially a straight line, you know. So, you you know, you start at one end of the line, you finish at the other, mm-hmm. and uh, the the regulations state that you have to have a kind of certain, you know, you have to have a looped course, mm-hmm. really. You have to have a certain amount of bend in your course. And also, there's a net downhill in Boston, even though there, even though there are a lot of hills, They've worked out that it's a net downhill, so therefore it can't be a world record. Having said all that, hardly anyone ever runs a fast time right. in Boston. Right. It's not normally considered a fast marathon because it's got all these hills, and fast marathons are normally flat, you know, windless, uh, and also they have pacemakers uh, at really fast marathons, and there are no pacemakers in Boston. So for all those reasons, nobody ever normally breaks a world record or would break a world record in Boston. It just so happened that in 2011... Joffrey Mutai went around 20302 
and it was it didn't count as a world record because he'd run it in Boston. Right, right. Um, do you run? So slowly, it's almost not worth talking about. But yeah, <laughs> I, do, I do. I try and run like three times a week. Were you doing that before you started reporting this, or no? Or had you um, yeah, I used to. I used to play rugby, so I guess the end of my rugby career coincided with the start of um, writing this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I did do more running once I'd seen how much fun all these guys had doing it, and uh, how effortless they made it seem. And I wanted to catch a little bit of that magic. Right. Um, I once went running with Joffrey Mutai, which was an experience I will never, ever forget. <laughs> he was just, I mean, he was trying to be polite, you know, by running as slowly as he could. And, you know, but in fact, I was going so slowly for him that it wasn't a run for him. It was like a kind of stylized walk. Right. Um, but anyway, it was it was a lovely moment. And, you know, it's like climbing into the ring with Tyson or something, you know, without the physical threat although i did feel like my heart might explode (laughs) one uh one thing that i found um in in doing any types of sports story uh is the struggle that the writer can have to describe a lot of sporting events and not have um have it come off as very boring uh you know especially uh and, and you describe a lot of people a lot of marathons which yeah. I think could be very easily it could be very easy to make that sound boring. It could but be I think so you, boring. I, I'm sorry. It could be so boring. But yeah. you avoid that. Um, oh, good. Uh, <laughs> is that was that something you were thinking about as you were writing? Like how how do I not make this marathon? You know, each time you describe a marathon, how do I not make this seem the reader want to put the book down? I actually never thought about that because to me it was always fascinating mm-hmm. because once you know a little bit about these guys' lives and once you start thinking about what they're actually doing with their bodies and once you realize that there's so much politics and, uh, you know, competitive spirit and tactics and all the things that make sport interesting mm-hmm. going on, no, it wasn't boring to me. I, I, I never worried about it being boring. I just loved, those were the most thrilling bits to write. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I would ride in the pace car. Um, I did this at the London Marathon and the Berlin Marathon. I would ride in the pace car, which would go just ahead of the lead men. And you'd watch these guys basically, you know, fight each other over 26 miles. And it was just breathtaking to mm-hmm. watch. You couldn't help but be totally fascinated by the drama that was unfolding in front of you. And I thought, if I can communicate 5% of this wonder to uh, a, you know, a readership, they're going to love it too, because how could you not? It just seemed to me that the marathons had always been talked about in a boring way. Mm-hmm. You know, or you know, when they're on television, I think it's, I think it's actually you know, televised very boringly. Mm-hmm. You know, when you watch the New York City Marathon, it's just, it couldn't be more boring. It's like a group of Kenyans or Ethiopians who you don't know, whose stories are not explained, running seemingly very fast, <laughs> and that one of them's going to win. And, you know, who could care about that? But once you know more about their lives and uh, who they are and why they're doing what they're doing, then, of course, it becomes more interesting. Yeah, I think um, I, I think you're yeah definitely knowing who they are and knowing what's at stake for them as well. Yeah. Um, because so much is at stake for them. Yeah. Um, 
given the shortness of their of their career and given where they come from and and all the people who depend on them as well, I think I, it really does make a difference. I think so. And, you know, there are so many things um, that I think professional running does so stupidly that, you know, they never announce what the prize money is um, or they never talk about it online. They, you know, you could find out if you wanted to what the prize money is for the New York City Marathon, but it's not something that really gets talked about. And they don't talk about really what the rewards are um, as a whole for the athlete who wins the New York City Marathon, like what it's going to mean to their lives. And I think sometimes you need to be invested in a sport, um, you know, like running. You, you need to have so much context because otherwise it's just a guy running down a road. You, you need to have all this context to understand what he's fighting for and where he's come from and where he's hoping to go to. Mm-hmm. And all that kind of, you know, all that kind of background is actually what makes running interesting. Mm-hmm. It's not just the movement of muscles in a body. It's like the movement through a life that you're witnessing. Mm-hmm. This two hours and however many minutes has the capacity to change someone's life. Mm-hmm. And that, that's where it becomes really fascinating for me. Right. Were you working on anything else while you were doing this book or was this book it, your full-time job? Oh, no. I was, well, I'm a magazine writer, so... I was, um, I was on a contract with the Sunday Times Magazine of London when I started, but I gave that up pretty quickly mm-hmm. because I wanted to become uh, roughly what I am now, which is a you know a freelance magazine writer who mostly works for American uh, publications. Um, and so I was working on stories for places like the New York Times Magazine, uh, you know, for GQ. Um, I started working you know, towards the end of it on um, something for The New Yorker. So that's roughly what I was doing. You know, I would, I would have to constantly interrupt uh, the book reporting or writing to do magazine stories or the other way around. You know, I was always doing both things. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going we're gonna to take a short break right now. Um, when we return, let's talk about some of those magazine stories um, and, and some of your, your, other, your other work. Um, Great. Uh, this is Gangry the Podcast. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department is the only fully converged and integrated media program in Ohio. JDM majors apply converged skills in practical, hands-on labs using state-of-the-art hardware and software content creation tools. And they do it all alongside award-winning faculty who double as industry professionals. Recently chosen as Ohio's best non-daily student newspaper, The Collegian covers our campus and beyond. Ashland's 3,000-watt radio station, 88.9 WRDL, broadcasts local news, sports, talk, and today's best music to mid-Ohio and to the world on WRDLFM.com. Meanwhile, AUTV20 brings campus news, sports, and events to life in more than 12,000 homes. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department, creating converged digital media professionals for the 21st century. Find more information and apply today at ashland.edu slash JDM. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. I'm talking with Ed Caesar, who has written the book Two Hours, The Quest to Run the Impossible Marathon, which came out stateside in October. Ed, let's talk about some of your other work. Um, earlier this year, you wrote a piece for the New Yorker, uh, um, for the New Yorker, um, about this mysterious mansion in London. 
can you talk about that piece? Sure. So that was a uh, that arose from a fairly simple question, uh, which was about this big house that I'd I'd once had a look around with a, a real estate agent uh, in 2008 when it was on the market, and I'd I was writing a story about another part of London with lots of big houses in it, and I said to the agent, you know, can you show me something else that's amazing? You know, just at the end of my reporting, and he showed me around this place called Wittenhurst which was absolutely astonishing. It was huge. Uh, it was built by a, uh, a soap magnate uh, in 1913. And uh, it had 25 bedrooms and a ballroom, and, uh, but it was completely gone to ruin. You know, the, there were holes in the roof where rain was coming in, and there was all this faded grandeur um, everywhere. And it was on the market for, I think, 50 million pounds, whatever that is now, $75 million. Uh, within six acres of land in London, you know, in Highgate in London. And it had always been, you know, I heard that it had been sold. And it had always been this big secret after that, who who it had been sold to. And you couldn't find out uh, who owned the house because all their identity was protected by offshore companies who actually, you know, technically own the house. And all the neighbors around the house i found out were fed up because for years and years the new owners whoever they were had been building the most extraordinary uh basement a uh probably like a forty-five thousand square foot basement <laughs> underneath the forecourt of the house as if the 25 bedrooms and the ballroom were not enough right. and they were also building a thing called the orangery which would be for sort of private family living which was this sort of like pretty big house in itself which was connected via basements to the main house into the basement so the whole thing was just running out of control it was like this huge uh, xanadu complex and um i just pitched in a very simple way to someone of the new yorker you know why can't we find out who the owners of this house are you know, don't you think it'd be interesting? It's kind of the story of new money in London. It's the story of what's happened to our city, mm-hmm. is that this huge amount of wealth has come in. But it's anonymous wealth, and a lot of times you're not allowed to know whose money it is, really. And it took me about a year <laughs> um, to report the story, to find out who owned it, to find out more about the people who owned it, uh, to understand why they wanted to be private, uh, and not have their names out there. And it was just a really amazing ride, that story. Yeah, I was going to ask how long it's, I was going to ask you how long it took you to report it because I, you know, as I was reading it, it's just so, I mean, so much reporting that would have to go into, uh, you know, just getting past the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there's just so much there. Oh, it was crazy. I had about six months of knocking my head against a brick wall. I would ask anyone who I could think of to know who owns this house. They would introduce me to someone who might know. I felt like I was sometimes getting a bit closer. I mean, I knew it was a Russian. And there's, you know, there are a lot of rich Russians, but, you know, there's not that many. Like, you know, which, mm-hmm. you know, if you, when you go down the list, you know, like, is it going to be this guy? Is it gonna, you know, you start trying to deduce who it might be. I had a pretty good idea that it was someone and then turned out not to be them. Mm-hmm. Um 
And the way I found out it wasn't then was I went through, he'd just been in a very expensive divorce. <laughs> and I went to um, his ex-wife's divorce lawyers and said, you know, did this house ever come up in the uh, settlement? Um, and they said, no, we we thought about that too. But no, it turns out he doesn't own the house. So I was like, okay, <laughs> chop him off the list. Right. Um, and then eventually through, you know, through some, you know, reporting, basically in Russia and in London, I got to got to who it was, and um, yeah, it was um, it was it was probably the most um, reporting I've ever ever done on a story um, for no reward for a long time. Uh-huh. And then suddenly I had this chink of light just before Christmas uh, 2014, mm-hmm. and then from then on it was a case of kind of um, not just proving the story, but finding out why this person who owned the house, a guy called Andre Guriev a huge, you know, potassium uh, czar in Russia, you know, why he wanted to keep it secret and why that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was, it was one of the most fun that once I found out, once I knew that I could do the story, once I found out who owned the house, it was one of the most fun uh, things to do because then you were really telling a story that had never been told. Mm-hmm. Did... Did its publication depend upon you actually finding out who who owned it? For sure, yeah. <laughs> the, um, my editor at the New Yorker, um, who's a very brilliant editor called Daniel Zaleski, was extremely nice about you know, you know, when I kept on saying to him, "Listen, I'm, I feel like I'm getting closer, but you know, no cigar." But it was the pro, you know, the proviso was always, you know, we need to know who owns the house mm-hmm. because there's no good going down all these. Uh, interesting byways if we can't say at the end you know this is the guy that right. owns it um that just would have been massively unsatisfying for everyone involved and i didn't want to publish a story like that either i wanted to find out who it was because that was what had first prompted my interest in it but there were times when i thought i'm going to do months and months of work here for literally nothing i'm not going to get a story out of it right and also the you know the added pressure was it was my first thing for the new yorker you know which is a magazine that i'd I'd really wanted to write for for a long time and they'd given me this commission and I couldn't do it and I felt like I, you know like one of those dreams where everyone else is running and you can't run right yeah it felt a bit like that <laughs> <laughs> so that was your first piece for the New Yorker um, can you talk yeah. about like the style and and was because it is definitely a much different style than um, just about anything else uh, I read, and, and most other people read. Was that a challenge for you as a, as a, a first-time writer for them? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've I've read the magazine for a long time, uh, so I've, I've and I think about how stories are put together a lot. Um, so I feel like I have a good idea about what a New Yorker story looks like, mm-hmm. and in fact, I don't know whether you would say like that story was structured in a conventionally new yorker way i mean it kind of dots around a little bit before Mm -hmm. you get to where you need to go um i don't know i just i wrote it it, you know i tried to write it and i thought the story itself was so extraordinary you know the the facts that i'd uncovered in reporting were kind of extraordinary that i didn't have to add many bells and whistles to to make it interesting right you know i just had to kind of you know relate the you know, the facts as I saw them. And, and there were some brilliant characters. You know, the next-door neighbors to Wittenhurst were just kind of uh, gold. 
um, you know, this elderly couple who'd watched the kind of destruction of their peace and quiet from their back garden and seen this huge new Versailles-like building being thrown up, who were kind of old English characters out of an Evelyn War novel. Uh, you know, I didn't have to do much. They just told me funny stuff. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think the really, the really hard thing was reporting, and then I just had to kind of forget that I was writing it for the New Yorker right. and try to just not be too clever in a way. <laughs> it sounds <laughs> stupid, but I just didn't want to be too clever with it, just to try and write it as it, you know, as it appeared to flow naturally. Right. On, on the other end of the spectrum, you have, you've written about um, the greatest living darts player, um, yeah. which I love because I love sports pieces about sports that you almost never see stories about. Um, can, can you talk about, uh, can you talk about that piece and then maybe like, yeah. uh, what drew you, what drew you to him? Well, actually that was an idea. Um, the editor of Guardian Longreads, Jonathan Shannon suggested it to me, um, that Phil Taylor, who was, a, you know, a darts player who had kind of dominated his sport for a long, long time was, was on the slide, um, this kind of fits into the kind of sad old man of sports mm-hmm. <laughs> stories that you see from time to time. Um, but actually, it was really, you know, it was, it was really fun to report because it's not just a sport, it's a whole different world. Right. Darts, you know, it attracts a certain type of person. You know, the events are raucous, um, celebrations, you know, everyone's in fancy dress, in costumes. It's like, you know, Halloween every single night at <laughs> the darts. And, um, this very, you know, seemingly humble, quite overweight, um, everyday sort of person from uh, Stoke-on-Trent in, you know, in the Midlands of England was the acknowledged king of this sport. And it was just fascinating to see how this particular skill had transformed his life this particular and very niche skill of throwing little darts at a, at a board had, had completely transformed his life. Yeah, I think um, the best sports stories are, are those that are, are not about the sport itself, but about uh, somebody's life and how that, that sport has kind of affected their life. Um, I've written about two horseshoe pitchers, <laughs> um, the best and the second best, and they're some of my favorite stories because you get you get a look at somebody who doesn't get the attention of like a quarterback in the NFL. Yeah, the, one of my favorites is um, Mike Pataniti wrote this story about I'm going to get his name wrong now. I think he's called Thurman Munson. Yeah, yeah. He used to be with the Yankees. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about baseball. I should tell you. Um, and I read this story, and I was totally involved. It's written in such a beguiling way about how Thurman Munson, you know, had lived this, you know, crazy life with um, the Yankees of his era, and how he'd become a hero to Pasaniti as a small boy. And it was all about life. It was really hardly at all about baseball. Mm-hmm. And I just love that story so much. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Patternetti can write. Um, beautifully about just about anything, even uh, a piece of cheese. I don't know if you've read The Telling Room. I've read uh, that book. I love that book. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Um, so, uh, well, are you working on anything right now? I would yeah, assume you I've are. Just, um, I just filed a story, another story for The New Yorker. Um, I'm doing, I've got another book um, 
project on the go, which is uh, about a man who in 1934 attempted to climb Everest um, uh, years before it was successfully climbed. And he tried to climb it on his own, uh, and he flew a gypsy moth biplane from London to India and then uh, trekked up to Everest uh, and then attempted twice to climb the mountain. Um, so it's a story about him and about his um, about his past as a as a war veteran, uh, and about the reasons why we need mountains and we need adventure. Um, so it's a kind of change of direction for me, but I'm been totally obsessed by this story since I first heard it a few years ago, mm-hmm. and I've been longing to write about it, and I so I'm going to write a book it about it. Seems like an entirely different type of reporting, though. Uh, no, I, know. I don't know how to do it. You must tell me. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> so <laughs> it's in, um, you know, it's mostly in archives. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I'm just about to go out to Germany to pick up a bunch of this guy's letters. He was a Brit, but somehow these letters have ended up in Germany. So like next week, I'm going to get on a plane and go and see a man who's got a bunch of this guy's old letters in his basement. Um, you know, I'm going to be trawling the archives in London and, you know, near his home in Bradford and you know, it's a completely different type of reporting, but right. it's fun to stretch some different muscles. It is. It's a lot of fun. Ed, thanks so much uh, for joining the podcast. No worries. My pleasure. And uh, good luck on your piece. Okay. Thanks so much. Yep. Thanks. We've been talking with Ed Caesar, author of Two Hours, The Quest to Run the Impossible Marathon. As usual, we've linked to a lot of his stories online at our website. That's at www. GangriThePodcast.com. Get updates on the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at GangriPodcast, at G A N G R E Y P O D C A S T. We've also got a Facebook page, so like us to get regular updates. Gangri the Podcast is produced in the studios of 88.9 FM WRDL at Ashland University and is supported by the Department of Journalism and Digital Media. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for listening.